1990, psychiatrist Dr. Louis Joylin West, MD, professor of psychiatry, University of California, pet shrink of the cryptocracy, gave a speech on cults. As usual, it was soft on fact and hard on the cryptocracy line. Quote, it is estimated that there are more than 2,500 cults in the United States. Now, there must be a lot more cults than that since the Oxford English Dictionary said the word cult meant, number one, worship, number two, a particular form of religious worship, especially in reference to its external rites and ceremonies, number three, devotion to a particular person or thing, some would say that includes the moose, elk, shriners, optimists, boy scouts, certain football teams, religions of all denominations, hand gliding clubs, skydiving clubs, James Joyce reading groups, and so on. But without argument, West's comments on cult psychiatric aspects are, quote, Ten different varieties can be identified, but most of them are religious or mystical. All share certain characteristics that differentiate them from religious sects on the one hand, counterculture communes on the other. Some cults appear to be relatively benign, others harmful, some deadly. Under certain conditions, people can be deliberately manipulated, influenced, and controlled to a considerable degree, even to their detriment, and indeed to express beliefs and exhibit behaviors far different from what their lives up to then would have logically or reasonably predicted. Furthermore, persons in such situations may suffer harm, psychological, physical, financial, and other, as a consequence of their having been thus manipulated, influenced, and controlled. Such words as brainwashing, thought reform, coercive persuasion, and the more ominous-sounding mind control are often employed to account for the domination and manipulation by some cults of their members. Roughly one-third of the people who leave cults, either voluntarily or through their efforts of concerned family members, will exhibit some kind of psychopathology. Of course, West would not dare mention the cult of intelligence or satanic and pagan cults which have been co-opted by the cryptocracy and utilized as valuable assets. At the time, there is a rabid anti-cult audience so West held the easily led, quote, mental health community in thrall, especially since the public hadn't yet recovered from the biggest cult mass murder in American history, Jonestown. The Jonestown Massacre, as it has come to be called, began when Jim Jones ordered his followers to commit suicide. It ended with 900 plus bodies rotting in the Guyanese jungle, most of them black, nearly 300 children dead, along with three journalists and the first U.S. congressman assassinated in the line of duty, machine-gunned on the airport runway. The whole story about Jonestown still hasn't been revealed. Too many bodies were buried too fast. Too many official lies were told. But in light of the events in Waco, Texas, and our knowledge of mind control, it's worthwhile to take another look. On November 19, 1978, the day after the so-called Jonestown cult suicide, I received a call from May Brussel. Jonestown was a mind control experiment, she said, in her usual get-down-to-business style. There was a Soviet base nearby, and the CIA was using the place for something, maybe just to cover. Then Ryan got involved, 
and they decided to see if they could trigger a mass program. The ultimate test, mass suicide, to test the mastery at mind control. Mae Russell was one of a kind, the daughter of a Jewish Los Angeles judge and the granddaughter of I. Magnin. May had devoted her life to research. It was her passion. She was devoted to citizens' intelligence gathering and was therefore aware before any other ordinary citizen, I mean, without being one who was an accomplice to the crime, that Nazi war criminals had been admitted to the United States in wholesale numbers, given citizenship, new identities, and put to work for the cryptocracy. When the first edition of this book was published, May went out of her way to meet me. She congratulated me heartily and thanked me for writing this book. In hindsight, I may have been among the first to confirm, without knowing it, some of her conclusions about the totalian cryptocracy which was taking over America. When we talked in San Francisco, that's the first time I had the impression that there was a tiny grandmotherly woman who was suffering from input overload. She talked breathlessly, jumping from one subject to another, swimming in facts, weaving together important pieces of vast patriots quilt which covered a conspiracy to invisibly corrupt this institution and the Constitution. Now, after almost 17 years, I understand only a fragment of what May Russell knew then, and I hold her on a plateau of respect which has levitated through time. She called me again when John Lennon was assassinated. Mark David Chapman, Lennon's killer, was one of the CIA sleeper agents programmed to kill like a Manchurian candidate, she said. See who killed John Lennon by Fenton Bressler. And she called again when Ronald Reagan was shot, telling me that his assistant or assailant, David Hinckley, was a hypno-programmed in the same schools as Lennon's assassin. May never got over Jonestown. She knew all about it. She even called it Camp Mind Control. And as it turned out, May was often ahead of everybody else, but she was seldom wrong. To refresh your memory, Jim Jones was the leader of a San Francisco-based church known as the People's Temple Christian Church. Powerful order. Jones drew to his pews the poor, social activists, Hispanics, and mostly blacks, both young and old. His message was peppered with socialistic philosophy. In fact, Jones was a self-proclaimed Marxist fanatic, a white revolutionary who commanded a huge black following of thousands. If we've learned anything from the revelations of Cointelpro and other covert FBI political operations, we can assume that Jones captured the immediate attention of the cryptocracy. He was even assisted in his meteoric rise to become the head of an illegal multi-million dollar empire. Building a network of connections with legitimate politicians, Jones was appointed by Mayor Moscone as the director of the San Francisco Housing Authority. He supported from the pulpit and was, in turn, supported by both Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. At the same time, he was caching weapons, experimenting with brainwashing techniques using high-voltage shock to program the small children of his parishioners, and building an international presence in South America. Debbie Layton, a former Temple member, told the syndicated TV program in search of Jones wasn't a Christian. He was an atheist. He called Christ the sky god. He was clever, deceitful, and evil. 
He read all the books on psychology and brainwashing, and he knew all the tricks that would get people to do what he wanted them to do. Jones spoke of justice, racial harmony, and he spewed fire and brimstone in his criticism of the hypocrisy of this world. At its peak, the People's Temple was the largest, richest, and most tightly organized group of self-proclaimed revolutionaries in the entire country. And after gaining such a huge following, Jones naturally became the target of the local press. Jim Jones and his church became the feature of a number of scathing news articles. Jones claimed the negative press attention was motivated by those who exposed his newly found apocalyptic religion. He used the bad press, especially in 1977 article in the New West, as an excuse to move most of the members of his church to the promised land of Guyana. But the stories of beatings, kidnappings, sexual abuse, and mysterious deaths continue to surface. Before the events of November 1978, there was no less than a dozen investigations of Jim Jones underway by various law enforcement agencies. Including these was his illegal involvements in drug smuggling, gun running in the Caribbean, kidnapping, arson, money laundering, customs violations, welfare fraud, illegal broadcast of coded messages, abuse of tax-exempt status, forging trust deeds, and even murder. Each of these inquiries was abandoned, stalled, botched, or compromised until it was too late. In several of these cases, classified investigative leads and informants were revealed to Jones. A number of investigative files were found in Jones' cabin in Guyana after the massacre. After all this activity was brought to attention of congressional members, and Leo Ryan in particular since his electoral district was the Bay Area from which most of the complaints against Jones issued, Ryan was not warned about the activities of Jonestown. In fact, it is believed that intelligence agencies intervened with the State Department to limit inquiries and discussions on Jones. Ryan decided to go to Guyana and investigate the situation for himself. When Ryan and a group of reporters landed on their tiny airstrip of Port Catamara, briefly visited Jonestown and were murdered as they were attempting to leave Guyana at the airport. Ryan was posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor and was the first Congress member to die in the line of duty. Then followed the White Knight, a supposed mass suicide pact which was executed by the entire population of Jonestown. Some of the community, made up mostly of black women and children, drank cyanide from paper cups of Kool-Aid at the urging of Jones. Others refused and were either injected or shot. Modern Masada children and their mothers died around the main pavilion where Jim Jones allegedly shot himself in the head. For days, the body count mounted from 400 to nearly 1,000. The bodies were flown to the United States and later cremated or buried in mass graves. Pete Hamill called the corpses all the loose change of the 60s. Hamill now wishes he'd never written that. May Russell's friend and fellow researcher John Judge saw it differently. In an essay, The Black Hole of Guyana, he wrote, quote, The effect of Jonestown's was electric. Any alternative to the current system was seen as futile, if not deadly. Protests only led to police riots and political assassination. Alternative lifestyles and drugs led to creepy-crawly communes and violent murders. 
and religious experiments led to cults and suicide. Social utopias were dreams that turned into nightmares. The television urged us to go back to the happy days of the apocalyptic 50s. The message was, get a job and go back to church. The unyielding nuclear threat generated only nihilism and hopelessness. There was no answer but death, no exit from the grisly future of materialistic consumption, a return to American values and the moral majority white Christian world. The official message was clear. One early headline read, Colt dies in South American jungle, 400 die in mass suicide, 700 flee into jungle. Statements of People's Temple members and accounts in the press claim there were 1,100 people at Jonestown. 800-900 adult passports were found there, and there were reports of 300 children being there, supposedly 276 found among the dead, with 210 not identified. Almost a week later, the official Guyanese body count was issued by the American military. That count came only to a 913 bodies. 16 survivors were then reported to have returned to the United States. Numbers don't lie, so at their first chance America claimed that the Guyanese could not count. Next, the Americans proposed another theory. The Guyanese had misseen a pile of bodies at the back of the pavilion. Then, finally, the Americans gave the official reason for the discrepancy bodies had fallen on top of other bodies, adults covering children. It was simple, if morbid, arithmetic that led to the first suspicions, John Judge wrote. The 408 bodies discovered at first count would have to be able to cover 505 bodies for a total of 913. In addition, those who first worked on the bodies would have been unlikely to miss bodies lying beneath each other since each body had to be punctured. 82 of the bodies first found were those of children, reducing the number that could have been hidden below others. A search of nearly 150 photographs, aerial and close-up, fails to show even one body lying under another, much less 500. It seemed the first reports were true. 400 had died and 700 fled to the jungle. The American authorities claimed to have searched for people who had escaped but found no evidence of anything in the surrounding area. At least 100 Guyanese troops were among the first to arrive and they were ordered to search the jungle for survivors. In the area, at the same time, British Black Watch groups were on training exercises with nearly 600 of their best trained commandos. Soon, American Green Berets were on site as well. The presence of these soldiers, especially trained in covert killing operations, may explain the increasing number of bodies that appeared. A new phrase was put out in the American press. Suicide murder? But was it suicide or was it murder? Dr. Leslie Matu, the top Guyanese pathologist, arrived at the scene within hours of the massacre. He turned away at the assistance of U.S. pathologists and accompanied the teams that counted the dead, examined the bodies, and worked to identify the deceased. While the American press was screaming about Kool-Aid suicides, Dr. Matu was coming to a very different conclusion. 
While news reports held that the people of Jonestown died from drinking cyanide laced Kool-Aid, Dr. Matu could find no evidence of cyanide poisoning. In fact, all signs of cyanide poisoning were absence in the Jonestown dead whose limbs were limp and relaxed. The faces showed no signs of distortion to telltale sign death of cyanide. Cyanide blocks the messages from the brain to the muscles by changing body chemistry, which affects the central nervous system. Involuntary functions like breathing and heartbeat get mixed with neural signals from cyanide poisoning. The muscles begin to spasm, limbs twist and contort, and facial muscles draw back into a deadly grin called cyanide rictus. Dr. Matu found that the 80 to 90% of the Jonestown victims had fresh needle marks in the back of the left shoulder blades. Others were shot or strangled. The gun that reportedly shot Jim Jones was lying nearly 200 feet from his body, not next to, as it was a suicide weapon. The Guyanese grand jury investigating the math desk concluded that all but three of the people were murdered by persons unknown. The grand jury concluded that only two people had committed suicide. Lieutenant Colonel Schuler, the U.S. Army spokesperson for the massacre cleanup, announced, No autopsies are needed. The cause of death is not an issue here. The forensic U.S. doctors who did autopsies at Dover, Delaware, later, were not aware of Dr. Matu's findings. Despite the Guyanese grand jury's findings, the Guyanese government participated with the Americans in a deep cover-up of the real story. The Americans brought in 16 C-131 cargo planes, planes made for carrying tanks, trucks, troops, and ammunition at the same time. The Americans claimed they could carry only 36 caskets out at one time. The removal of the bodies took nearly a week. The bloated and rotten corpses that were eventually returned from the tropics of Guyana were impossibly possible to autopsy. Thanks to the media blitz, including a movie of the week that followed the massacre, today 98% of the American population recognize the name Jonestown and believe it was a mass suicide of a black cult of religious fanatics led by Jim Jones. But really, ha what really happened at Jonestown? The site of the massacre was the Matthew Bridge section in Guyana, originally the site of the Union Carbide, Bauxite, and Manganese mine, which had early been one of seven possible sites chosen for the relocation of Jews after World War II. Once the site had been prepared by a crew of select temple members, the parishioners were loaded into business into San Francisco, driven to Florida, and loaded into Pan American charter planes, which flew them to Guyana. When they arrived at the airport, the temple parishioners were taken off the plane, bound and gagged. The deception had finally stripped bare of all pretense. The blacks were so isolated and controlled that neighbors as close as five miles from the site did not judge the blacks lived at Jonestown, John's judge wrote. The only public representatives seen in Guyana were white, judge continued. According to survivor reports, they entered a virtual slave labor camp, worked for 16 to 18 hours daily. They were forced to live in cramped quarters on minimum rations, usually rice, bread, and sometimes rancid meat. Kept on a schedule of physical and mental exhaustion, 
They were also forced to stay awake at night and listen to lectures by Jones. Threats and abuse became more common. The camp medical staff under Dr. Lawrence Schott was known to perform painful suturing without anesthetics. They administered drugs and kept daily medical records. Infractions of the rules or disloyalty had to be increasingly harsh punishments, including forced drugging, sensory isolation, and underground box work, physical torture, and public sexual rape and humiliation. Beatings and verbal abuse were commonplace. Only the special guards were treated humanely and fed decently. People with serious injuries were flown out, but few ever returned. Perhaps the motto of Jonestown should have been the same at one of the Auschwitz developed by Larry Schott's namesake. Dr. Schott, the Nazi minister of economics, Erheit macht frei, or work will make you free. Guyana even considered setting up an Auschwitz-like museum at the site, but abandoned the idea. By the time Jones moved from the parishioners of the People's Temple to Jonestown, he had amassed a fortune. Press estimates ranged from $26 million to $2 billion, including bank accounts, foreign investments, and real estate. Much of this wealth listed publicly after the massacre disappeared. The judge says, It was fortune far too large to have come from membership alone. The receivership set up by the government settled a total of $10 million. In addition, there are indications that George Philip Blakely and other members were supplementing the temple funds with international smuggling of guns and drugs. This seemingly random allegation will take on greater significance as you listen further. John Judge sums up his conclusions of the significance of Jonestown Massacre for the purpose of this study. To comprehend this well-financed sinister operation, we must abandon the myth that this was a religious commune and study instead the history that led to its formation. Jonestown was an experiment part of the 30-year program called MKUltra, the CIA and military intelligence code name for mind control. A close study of Senator Irvin's 1974 report, Individual Rights and the Government's Role in Behavior Modification, shows that these agencies had certain target populations in mind for both individual and mass control. Blacks, women prisoners, the elderly, the young, and the inmates of psychiatric wards were selected as potentially violent. There were plans in California at that time for a center for the study of the reduction of violence, expanding on the horrific work of Dr. Jose Delgado, Mark and Irvin, and Dr. Jolly West, experts in implantation, psychosurgery, tranquilizers, etc. The guinea pigs were to be drawn from the ranks of the target populations and taken to an isolated military missile base in California. In that same period, Jones began to move his temple members to Jonestown. There were the exact populations selected for such tests. The meticulous daily notes and drug records kept by Larry Shett disappeared. But evidence did not. The history of MKUltra and its sinister sister program, MK Delta, Artichoke, and Bluebird, records a combination of drugs, drug mixtures, electroshock, and torture as methods for control. 
The desired results ranged from temporary and permanent amnesia, uninhibited confessions, and a creation of second personalities to programmed assassins and preconditioned suicide allergists. One goal was the ability to control mass populations, especially for cheap labor. Dr. Delgado told Congress that he hoped for a future where technology would control workers in the field and troops at war with electronic remote signals. He found it hard to understand why people would complain about electrodes implanted in their brains to make them both happy and productive. On the scene at Jonestown, Guyanese troops discovered a large cache of drugs, enough to drug the entire population of Georgetown, Guyana, well over 200,000, for more than a year. According to survivors, these were being used regularly to control a population of only 1,100 people. One footlocker contained 11,000 doses of Thorazine, a dangerous tranquilizer. Drugs used in the testing for MKUltra were found in abundance, including sodium pentothal, a true serum, chlorohydrate, a hypnotic, Demerol, thallium, confuses thinking, and many others. Shot had supplies of haloperid and lethargitil, two other major tranquilizers as well. The actual descriptions of life at Jonestown is this of a tightly run concentration camp, complete with medical and psychiatric experimentation. The stresses and isolation of the victims is typical of sophisticated brainwashing techniques. The drugs and special torture add an additional experimental aspect to the horror. This more clearly explains the medical tags on the bodies and why they had to be removed. It also suggests an additional motive for frustrating any chemical autopsies, since these drugs would have been found in the system of the dead. John's Judge continues. The story of Jonestown is that of a gruesome experiment, not a religious utopian society. On the eve of the massacre, Forbes Burnham was reportedly covered to be born again Christianity by members of the Full Gospel Christian Businessmen's Association including Lionel Luckahoo, a temple lawyer in Guyana, same group based in California, also reportedly Guatemala dictator Rios Montt prior to his massacre there, and they were in touch with Jim Jones in Ukiah. With Ryan on his way to Jonestown, the seal of secrecy was broken. In a desperate, desperate attempt to test their conditional methods, the Jonestown elite apparently tried to implement a real suicide drill. Clearly, it led to a revolt, and the majority of the people fled, unaware that there were people waiting to catch them. Jim Jones was surrounded by CIA agents or affiliates. He had a long-term friendship with Dan Mitrani, whom he joined forces with in Richmond, Indiana during the 1950s, where Mitrani was chief of police. Mitrione moved on to the CIA Finance International Police Academy, where police are trained in counterinsurgency and torture techniques. Former Green Beret Charles Bikeman was with Jones to the end, and later charged with the murders of several Temple members in Georgetown following the massacres. Deputy Chief of Mission for the U.S. Embassy in Guyana, Richard Dyer, was the CIA agent on the scene at the time of the massacre. Present at the campsite and the airport, Dwyer's accounts were used by the State Department to confirm the death of Congressman Ryan. 
at the massacre's site, Jones said, get Dwyer out of here, just before the killings began. Other U.S. Embassy personnel in Guyana knew the situation well at Jonestown. U.S. Ambassador John Burke, who served in the CIA with Dwyer in Thailand, and was an embassy official described by Philip G as working for the CIA since 1963, was well aware of the situation. A Reagan appointee to the CIA, Burke was employed by the agency on State Department assignments. Burke made a futile attempt to stop Ryan's investigation of Jones. Also at the embassy was Chief Consular Officer Richard McCoy, who worked for military intelligence on loan from the Defense Department at the time of the massacre. He was described as being close to Jones. According to Judge, the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown housed the Georgetown CIA station. It now appears that the majority, and perhaps all of the embassy officials of CIA officers operate under State Department covers. The State Department concealed all reports of violations at Jonestown from Congressman Leo Ryan, yet the embassy regularly provided Jones with copies of congressional inquiries under the Freedom of Information Act. It is well known that Ryan was no friend of the cryptocracy. He had challenged the agency's overseas operations as a member of the House Committee responsible for oversight on intelligence. He authored the controversial Hughes-Ryan Amendment that would have required CIA disclosure in advance to the congressional committees of all planned covert operations. This amendment was defeated shortly after his death. Dan Weber, who was sent to the site of the massacre a day later, was also named as CIA. Judge says, quote, The connection of intelligence agencies to cults is nothing new. A simple but revealing example of the Unification Church tied to both the Korean CIA, i.e. American CIA in Korea, and international fascist network known as the World Anti-Communist League. The Moonies hosted WACL's first international conference. What distinguished Jonetown was both the level of control and the openly sinister involvement. It was imperative that they cover their tracks. The direct orders to cover up the cause of the death came from the top levels of the American government. Zbigniew Brzezinski delegated to Robert Pastor as he in turn ordered Lieutenant Colonel Gordon Sumner to strip the bodies of identity. After the Jonestown massacre, Pastor was promoted to the position of Deputy Director of CIA. Judge continues, One can only wonder, Judge wrote, how many others tied to the Jonestown operation were similarly promoted? The ultimate victims of mind control at Jonestown are the American people. If we fail to look beyond the constructed images given to us by the television and press, then our consciousness is manipulated just as well as the Jonestown victims were. There never has been a full investigation of the Ryan assassination or the People's Temple Massacre. There were special congressional hearings held in the aftermath, but these were so flawed as to be farcical. Subpoena power was not invoked to compel testimony. The staff of the U.S. Embassy in Guyana weren't even called. Only a watered-down report was issued, of which 5,000 pages were classified and withheld from release. The only trial to result from Jonestown was criminal prosecution of Temple 
functionary Larry Layton, who was tried once in Guyana and twice in the United States. The Guyanese acquitted him of murder charges on the grounds that he had been brainwashed. The second trial was held in San Francisco. The charges were conspiring to kill Congressman Ryan. It ended in a hung jury. The third trial saw Layton convicted of conspiracy charges and sent to prison on Jonestown's single scapegoat. The judge in Layton's case summarily denied defense motions to obtain documents and testimony regarding State Department or CIA involvement with the People's Temple. A group of Jonestown survivors and relatives also filed a 50 million civil action suit and federal government alleging such involvement, but their case was thrown out almost immediately on procedural grounds and all subsequent appeals were turned down. Jim Jones opened his first temple in Indianapolis in the late 50s. He sold live monkeys door to door to help finance it. He took a sabbatical in 1961 to 62, living under somewhat mysterious circumstances in Belo Horizonte, a small city on the Brazilian coast. A reporter from the San Jose Mercury News traveled to Bob Horizonte's after the killings, and he reported that several of Jones' neighbors from 1961 said a staff car from the U.S. Embassy visited him there weekly. When he returned to Indianapolis, Jones announced the temple would move to Northern California. Reporterman Art Silverman wrote, quote, It may be very well just a coincidence, but another man made the same pilgrimage from Indianapolis to South America at about the same time. He was Dan Mitroni, the Indianapolis police chief at the time Jones first proposed Temple. Mitroni later became infamous as the U.S. torture instructor working for the CIA under the cover of Agency for International Development, who was kidnapped, interrogated, and finally murdered by the Tomparo guerrillas in Uruguay. Mitroni's story was told in Costa Gravis' film, State of Siege. Did Jones and Mitroni know each other? Here we move into the twilight zone of conspiracy theories and speculations. A number of years ago, I called Matroni's son, Dan Jr., himself an FBI agent, and asked the very question. No, he said emphatically. And that was the end of it until March 1985, when Dan Matroni Jr. was in the papers himself. He had just pleaded guilty to federal charges for possessing 90 pounds of cocaine and was about to be sentenced to prison. There are still people who believe in Jim Jones, narrator Leonard Nimoy said at the close in search of Jim Jones. Some of them still sleep with Jones' picture. One of John Judge's most important sources, Michael Meyer, made a thorough study of Jonestown and wrote a book entitled, Was Jonestown a CIA Medical Experiment? A review of the evidence, his conclusions are worth repeating. Quote, while living in Brazil, Jones received his life assignment with the CIA, MKUltra program. By the time Jones was brought into the program, MKUltra was 15 years old, and many of the laboratories had since filed their papers with the agency before disbanding. The experiments conducted in university research departments, mental hospitals, and prison medical clinics represented the most authoritative source of information on their assigned subjects within the limits of a laboratory environment. The agency compiled 
library containing data that needed to be collated and into a comprehensive science of behavior modification. The task was assigned to Jim Jones, who would require another 15 years to complete his findings in a major field test known as Jonestown. Of course, as we've noted in his work, there was a lot of redundancy in the programs. Jones most likely knew nothing of the other programs going on at the same time. While he's reported using some of the so-called monarch techniques, researchers have raised enough evidence to suspect that Bonnie Melman, Berman, and Thelman, the blonde bomber, may have been a monarch model. It would appear that his focus was on mass mind control largely through drugs. While in Rio, Jones was briefed on MKUltra and took advantage of the locale to study voodoo and the African religion Makamba, as well as faith healing preacher David Martin's Demranda, who exhibited extraordinary control over his followers who referred to their leader as the envoy of the Messiah. This modern-day John the Baptist imparted much of his knowledge to the aspiring Jim Jones. A lot happened in 1963. In October, Britain suspended the Constitution of Guyana, and the leftist government fell. In November, President Kennedy was assassinated, and in December, the first several military coups destroying any hold of the communists had on the British-Brazilian government. In 1963, Truman and many others recognized the executive branch of their government was no longer in control of the agency, but no one questioned who was in control. Everyone assumed that the CIA had gone its separate ways under its own power. No one could see that the Nazis who had helped establish the agency had used the need-to-know security system to continue the Third Reich in the United States under the impenetrable cloak of national security. The Nazis hiding in the CIA were relatively quiet for the first few years after World War II that it required to convince the American people that their true enemy was not fascism, but communism. The success of the McCarthy era propaganda campaign in the early 1950s marked a distinct change in U.S. intelligence. No longer satisfied with merely gathering information about world events, it was their chartered function. The CIA began to create events that shaped history. With the formation of the National Security Agency in 1952, the CIA was relieved of the most responsibility for gathering intelligence, even though it had lived its original function. The agency continued to grow in personal and budget. They were left with little more to do than play what-if games. Speculative contingency planning like is there a pharmaceutical solution to the growing unrest among blacks and Native Americans? The experiment in Jonestown was conceived from just such speculation. Jim Jones worked for the CIA, but does not exclude the distinct possibility that he only worked through the agency for his true employer, the Nazis. As a youngster, he studied the Nazis, and later he would employ Nazis in his people's temple that was structured along fascist lines. When the FBI searched Jones' San Francisco office after the massacre, they found that half the books in his personal library were about behavior modification and the other half were about Nazi Germany. The odyssey that ended in Jonestown began some 15 years earlier in Brazil when Jones received his life assignment 
presumably, but not necessarily, from a CIA employer. Until 1983, the chief Nazi hunter in the U.S. government was Alan Ryan, but by his third year of the Reagan administration, most attempts to identify Nazis in government, and particularly in the CIA, were circumvented by President Reagan and Vice President Bush, a former director of CIA. Reagan gave the agency sweeping new powers to spy on American citizens at home, operate domestic, front companies, and prosecute anyone who identified agency personnel. He increased their budget and approved construction of a new wing on their headquarters. The recent growth of the CIA is indicative of a fascist, right-wing wave that is presently rampant in the United States. Where is the accountability of our government? Itemizing accounting shows that Jones received millions of dollars from the federal government, which he used to finance the experiments in Jonestown. Even the tractor that transported the assassins to the site of Congressman Ryan's murders was U.S. government surplus, Meyer asks. Had Jones only mastered the system and taken advantage of its bureaucratic inefficiency, or did he have inside help? As we have heard from the monarch survivors, sex was used by the cryptocrats to blackmail and reward politicians. Mears notes that also the pattern in the People's Temple. Sex was also used to reward and blackmail politicians both in California and later in Guyana, where Jones would provide a number of temple women to government officials who were there shown photographs of their encounter and be reminded that if they refused to cooperate with temple, their public careers would be ruined. And from looking at some of the Jones practices, we might assume that we might find them in use by the cryptocracy. Myers said that Jones required his closest trustees to sign a self-confession statement as a test of loyalty. The three basic confessions dictated by Jones and signed by the member attested to child molestation, homosexual acts, or conspiracy to assassinate public officials. It wasn't long before the signer realized his confessions might be used to blackmail him into Jones' service. This fear helped to blind the subject to the true danger, the sheet of paper, Jones required his top aides to sign the lower right-hand corner of a blank sheet of paper. It appeared harmless enough in comparison with the self-confession letter, but it was deadly. The blackmailed aides would become the temple hierarchy, the ruling elite, for the most part the only survivors of the massacre in Jonestown. Myers does as one would want to do, sound the alarm. Our freedoms are endangered. Our freedoms are endangered. Our freedoms are endangered. For our democracy to survive into the 21st century, Americans need to understand that their lives and freedom are in danger from an enemy that most believe was defeated over 40 years ago. We are now only 15 years into Himmler's plan to purify the race of man in the first 125 years of the thousand-year Reich. It would seem that the plan is still on schedule. Fifty years ago, the Nazis had to manually identify homosexuals and drug addicts, transport them to the death camps that they had built, pay for the guards, the cyanide, and the disposal of corpses all under public scrutiny, and the chance that eventually they would have to answer for their genocidal crimes. 
The Himmlers, Mengele's, Leighton's, and Jones's of this world have planned a war very different from the nuclear demise that most envisioned, but nonetheless devastating. Just as the Crystal Knight began the First Holocaust and the Second World War, so too was the White Knight began the Second Holocaust and your future. It is very important. Millions of lives are in the balance. Meyer's presence in an annotated biography of over 30 books written about Jonestown. Some are government propaganda, Myers writes. Others are defense of the authors or the church's involvement with Jim Jones. He traces the media propaganda and the cover-up that ensued in the aftermath of Jonestown. The most interesting aspect of the New York Times treatment of the Jonestown subject is not the contributors or distortions, but oddly, the placement of the articles in their newspaper. Most are adjacent to their articles on the CIA and the Nazis. A prime example is the December 4, 1980 edition, which included the CIA's ultimate defense. The article, entitled, House Committee Clears CIA of Role in People's Temple Cult, reported. The House Intelligence Committee has found no evidence at all that the Central Intelligence Agency was involved with the People's Temple Commune in Guyana before the mass murders and suicides there in 1978. The House Intelligence Committee was responding to Congressman Ryan's staff and others close enough to the story to at least suspect that the CIA had sponsored the experiment. Their no evidence at all statement was one of the most blatant lies in post-Jonestown propaganda campaigns. Adjacent to the story, the Times printed an article entitled CIA Linked to Mind Control Drug Experiments. Citing documents released a day earlier under the Freedom of Information Act, the story outlined how the CIA had conducted a mind control experiment on eight black eggments at the Federal Addiction Research Center in Lexington, Kentucky back in 1963. Previously released documents detailed the CIA's mind control experiments with LSD at the same facility but these later experiments used a mysterious hallucinogenic called BZ that is a very long-lasting drug which causes marked changes in mental functioning. According to the article, the Army had a similar program, presumably within the Army's Chemical Warfare Division under the direction of Dr. Lawrence Layton. It was more than just a coincidence that the CIA would be absolved of any wrongdoing in the Jonestown affair on the same day that they released documents incriminating themselves in a similar smaller scale experiment. The uncanny timing suggests that the agency's MK Ultra division was plea bargaining. Cleared of the major crime, they admitted to a lesser one. An overall study of the Times habit of placing articles in Jonestown adjacent to articles on the CIA and the Nazi raises questions as to their motives. Perhaps they simply recognized that these three seemingly unrelated subjects would interest the same type of reader, but there is a strong chance that the New York Times recognized the truth about Jonestown, but were either afraid to print it or censored from doing so. By placing articles on these three subjects together, they implied a connection to the amazement of conspiracy researchers and, no doubt, the irritation of the CIA. Perhaps we do not have the New York Times editors to thank for their attempt to say what they were not allowed to say outright. There had been a concerned attempt, Myers concludes, 
just as press information, stifle investigations, censor writers, and manipulate public opinion. The propaganda campaign that assaulted society following the experiment in Jonestown is extremely complex and in many ways more difficult to comprehend than the experimentation itself. The story is full of agents and counter-agents, provocateurs, and informants of dubious intention. Some work for Jim Jones or the CIA, others for themselves as a self-defense of their personal involvement with the People's Temple. Those few who worked for the truth were too often misled by their sources. The only conclusion that can be reached with any certainty is that the group of people who had helped formulate the public opinion of the White Knight was comprised of various villains and victims. Meyer's most startling revelation is that Jones and those closest to him escaped after the massacre into Venezuela. The Reverend Jim Jones is alive, wealthy, secure, conceivably sipping pina coladas on the veranda as he reads this first published account of his escape from the carnage he created in Jonestown. It was reported by a number of his followers that Jones had several doubles. Myers believed the body which was supposed to be Jones was one of his doubles. In the aftermath of the massacre, a corpse was discovered in front of the throne among the 900 others in and around the pavilion. It was tentatively identified as Jim Jones. Unlike most of the other victims, the body had not been poisoned but shot once behind the left ear. It was presumed that he had been murdered by a disenchanted follower as the gun was found some 30 yards away by this will never be established for certain because nitrate and neutron activist tests were not performed to determine if there were such traces of gunpowder on Jones's hands. Such tests are standard procedure in deaths where there is a question as to murder or suicide. The corpses identified as Jim Jones was allowed to rot in the jungle heat for four days before it was removed. No attempt was made to preserve the remains. The body was not refrigerated, not even in the temporary morgue set up at the Georgetown airport. This may do and be due in part to the U.S. State Department's original plan to bury all the dead in a mass grave in Jonestown without identification or autopsy. The FBI was not positive that the body was Jim Jones, only that the body was the same man arrested as Jim Jones five years earlier. There were no other records of Jones Prince. The authority authenticity of the LAPD files was never questioned and the case was mistakenly closed. Myers said that the CIA is not responsible for the Jonestown atrocity, but they are accountable for it. He states the obvious that any government or agency is only good or as bad as the people it employs. And he laments the lack of chain of command in the CIA, which is not typical of, say, military organizations. But he thinks he lets the CIA off too easy, at least for the murder of Leo Ryan. One of the first things a homicidal does in a murder investigation is to establish a motive. The CIA certainly had the motive to lure Congressman Ryan to Jonestown and a certain death. Ryan's interest in the CIA became the dominant factor in Ryan's life in Washington. His concern over the CIA's domestic spy operations was legitimate and well-founded. It had been reported that there were more than intelligence agencies illegally operating in Ryan's San Mateo County and the adjunct Santa Clarita County than in all other parts of the United States combined. Washington, D.C. included the area dubbed Silicon Valley, which had evolved to become the center of high technology in the U.S. 
and boasted the highest concentration of military and industrial secrets in the world. Ryan, who was a member of the Conformant Information and Individual Rights Subcommittee, accurately perceived the CIA's presence in California as a threat to the rights of the citizenry. The main problem was that many CIA operatives were violating the law in pursuit of their work. Innocent citizens were being hurt in the name of national security, and Ryan was concerned. Myers notes that several factors encouraged the CIA to break the laws of California. There were no detailed instructions to operatives, after all, and too much was left up to the discretion of individual agents. Besides, in a compartmentalized agency where the need to know applies, the right hand usually does care what the left hand is doing. Many agents believed that their secretive work in U.S. security was above the law and their higher purpose gave them license to break the law. Some thought their work was special, others thought they, they were special. This egotistical attitude remains a problem to this day. Also, there were agents who used their cover and contracts to further criminal activities they would have pursued even if they were not employed by the agency. This group was the inevitable criminal element found everywhere. In 1994, one of our sources reported that organized crime was giving large amounts sums of money to help undermine the CIA, which had taken over drugs, prostitution, pornography, and the slave trade. According to this Don, now we work for them, and we don't like it. There's no honor among them. If Congressman Leo Ryan had lived, things today would have been different. Almost as soon as he got to Washington, Ryan authored the Hughes-Ryan Amendment to the National Assistance Act. It would be the only piece of legislation he would introduce in his six years in Congress. It transferred responsibility for overseeing the CIA from the Armed Forces Committee, which too often turned a blind eye to the agency's activities, to the International Relations Committee of both houses of Congress. The CIA fought the act mightily and would have succeeded in squelching it had it not been for Ryan's impeccable timing. Ryan introduced the bill at the height of the Watergate scandal. The Hughes-Ryan Amendment passed into law, earning Leo Ryan two distinctions, a seat on the International Relations CIA Oversight Committee and a very prominent position on the CIA's list of enemies. Ryan's new legislation required the agency to account for all the money it spent for covert operations after congressional approval. It was as part of his work on the committee that Ryan discovered evidence to support the contention that the CIA had sponsored several cults that practiced mind control. He was quoted as saying, well, something has to be done about those people. Instead, they did something about Congressman Ryan. <laughs>